This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I'm Chanae Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, Front and Center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. Appreciate it, bro. Appreciate it, for real. Unfortunately, name recognition means too much. Ain't nobody better. Appreciate it, bro, for real. I appreciate that, for real, dude. That means a lot. That means a lot, bro, for real. Thanks, bro. Welcome to this week's edition of the Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, it might be November, but it's definitely elegant tank top season. Aaron Rodgers thinks Fred Warner is the best linebacker in the league, and really, who are we to disagree? And with me this week to tell us all about what it's like to get up and do a podcast on a Sunday, it's David Newman. It's a little weird. Not going to lie. It's, uh, it's a bit strange doing this um, at, like noon at lunchtime if you will um and not like well late into the night which is usually the case yeah this is uh, it's definitely a little weird i do have the games on my other screen so if i seem distracted uh or don't care about talking about this game uh it's not just because <laughs> the niners got their asses kicked it's because uh there's actual football on that doesn't suck it's great uh man th- it was it was a game uh it was a game that was kind of like expected Right. Like we, we talked a bit about how the Niners had, you know, $80 million on the, on injured reserve. And then if even if you just take away the salaries and you talk about what happened with the whole COVID thing with Kendrick Bourne getting a negative test, which I'm glad it's negative because I'm glad that while he didn't play, he doesn't have the Rona, which kind of an underreported story this season is what's happening with Ryquel Armstead. He got COVID and has been on the list and has been hospitalized a couple of times and he hasn't come back. He got COVID in the preseason. Um, so there, yeah. I mean, there are complications that that happen as a result of of the Rona. And so I'm glad that he doesn't have it, nor, you know, Brandon Ayuk and, and Williams were also there. But their salaries notwithstanding, those are the, like the few remaining key players you have left. At this point, the the 49ers look like a preseason roster and it, and it played that way. Yeah, like in in like a late fourth quarter preseason roster, like it's not not great, right? Like you mentioned, I mean, when we recorded and kind of were talking about the Packers game at the end of last week, um, it didn't seem like, and this was before again all of the kind of last minute scratches that we had um, that that you just mentioned there, like had happened, uh, and it still didn't seem like they were going to have a chance, right? They still were down so many players, and it was like, 
okay, cool. They're going to get and Like, I think they mentioned it during the broadcast, right? Like Shanahan said something like how Ayuk was going to get 85% of the game plan or something like that. Uh, and it's like, yeah, there was nothing else to do. I mean, there was, there was literally no one left on that offense to be able to get the ball to and have uh, much chance of, of getting anything done. And so, yeah, it was just like, they're incredibly shorthanded. Um, it, it's obviously well-documented. Everybody knows the story with their, their injuries at this point. And it's just like, it, it's more remarkable that they're even able to field a team at this point um, with how things have gone than, you know, having any realistic hope of beating uh, a contending team like Green Bay right now. They've used more players this season than they have in all of 2019, all the way through the Super Bowl. And we're like halfway through the season. So it is definitely a turnstile of players at the bottom of the roster. But this game was decided, you know, we, we do typically do a turning point video for the patreon subscribers and and this week the turning point was in the tunnel it was before it was before the game even started because yep. uh, the packers had aaron Rodgers and the 49ers do not and elite quarterbacks are a cheat code and Rodgers was on one in this game the, the niners tried to manufacture pressure they blitzed about 30 percent of the time which is a little above their average, but not like super duper high. It's on par with their game plan. Sala has been pretty good this season at generating pressure. But against the Packers, they only generated pressure on five snaps out of, I think, like 33 uh, dropbacks. And that is just not going to get it done against Aaron Rodgers. Five pressure snaps is not a good thing. The other thing that helps is that Rodgers getting the ball out in 2.22 seconds. So he, like he's just getting the ball out super quick. He's working within the structure of this offense. He is seeing that year two leap in the Shanahan kind of tree of offenses that people were expecting from Jimmy Garoppolo. <laughs> and and he just and he completely diced up the Niners secondary. Yeah. I, I mean, it was just like when when you have a quarterback that's uh of of that caliber and he's playing you know, very well and is kind of, you know, at the top of his game, there's going to be very little that you can do offensively. Right. I think like, and especially when you have, you know, uh, you know, somebody as talented as Devonte Adams on the receiving end of some of those, like there was, you know, for instance, that fourth down play, which was just kind of, you know, a short throw. It wasn't like it was some big downfield throw, but you had Jamar Taylor that was literally draped on, uh, Devonte Adams back and like holding one of his arms and Rogers puts it at basically the only spot that Adams can have any hope of getting it. And Adams like pins the ball against his helmet. Like defensively, there's, there's literally nothing else you can do to stop that. Like you can't play that any better and, and have any hope to, to like stop that play. And so when you have players of, of that ability level offensively, who are really clicking and, and playing at the top of their game, like it's just going to be tough. And and that's if you had again, like a fully healthy defense that was playing well and that you could, you know, had players on the back end that you could rely on consistently. Like the 49ers obviously don't have that right now. I mean, I think defensively they're in maybe a little bit better shape than the offense is, but it's still like, you know, you're, you're playing with a lot of backups out there and a lot of guys that just aren't uh, up to the skill level of the players that you're seeing offensively. Yeah. And the one time the Niners did get pressure on, on Aaron Rodgers and, and actually got a sack. It was Willis who gets the sack, but it was a play that was made by Armstead the even the defensive line is still a little bit rocky. Solid does like to stunt a lot to manufacture pressure, and and he did that again against the Packers. But the the stunt that uh, Armstead executes is able to get some pressure. It forces Rodgers out of the pocket, and that's where Willis ends up kind of getting what really is a cleanup sack. But 
it just it was it's one of those things where it's just so inconsequential when your quarterback can get the ball out in two and a quarter seconds and it ends up being like a 50 yard bomb to Devonte Adams and you know it just it's there's there's very little you can do to stop that even if the Niners were to have had Bosa and D Ford if Rodgers gets the ball out that quickly they can't get to Rodgers fast enough to make an impact this is where the team is really beginning to feel the lack of coverage defenders that they have it's it's kind of funny you look at Rodgers passing map right and in a lot of ways, it's the opposite of what you would expect from a 49ers quarterback and, and kind of what we've talked about so much and uh, where they like to throw the ball, right? The 49ers, you see a lot of those passes grouped in the middle of the field between the numbers uh, and especially in the intermediate area, right? Like short and intermediate areas really where they live. And you don't see even many attempts that are down the field. You don't see a lot of attempts that are wide out to the sideline. And you look at Rodgers and basically everything is either short in under 10 yards and wide out to the sideline. So these these are the, the kind of quick throws, right, that he's getting out in either quick game or just um, having a player that's open on his first read where he can get the ball out at the top of his drop. And, and he's kind of firing these quick, accurate throws that are really difficult to defend underneath. And then he's taking shots deep, right? So then they're hitting their play action shots. And, I mean, on 20-plus on throws, he only had two incompletions. So he's four or six on 20-plus throws with two touchdowns. Um, was Mullins four of six, like on throws under 10 yards on throws behind the line of scrimmage? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I don't like, uh, and, and the same thing on those, oh, um, the under 10, he only had two incompletions there. Like, uh, yeah. like the dude was just on it. And, and it's like, um, the short throws again, like you mentioned, make it very difficult, uh, as a pass rush to get anything going, because even if you win some of those matchups, the ball is getting out before you have a chance to close on the quarterback and actually affect anything. And then the way you design a lot of those play action shots, I mean, some of those are even more on quick game timing. You know, I think we've talked about this in the past where if you're not using play action or anything like that, and it's more of a standard drop back, a lot of the the deep shots that you take are really just a quarterback taking three steps and and getting it out there. And it's, it's the air time that allows it to be that deep shot, right? I think he had uh, the touchdown, the, the very first touchdown of Devontae Adams was kind of like that. Um, and then you're getting your play action shots mixed in there. And, and so again, that's um, helping to neutralize the pass rush um, because you're giving them that run action first that they have to respect. And so there's just not a lot of opportunities mixed in with all of that for a pass rush to to be able to have much impact. Yeah, and meanwhile, Mullins is Mullins. You know, he he played like a backup quarterback where he's missing players. He is is not making the best decisions, and he's got a couple of really good throws sprinkled in there that make you think like, oh wow, he can actually play in the NFL. And and that is Nick Mullins. You, you, you think about the the opening couple of plays, especially the second play from scrimmage. You've got uh, River Craycraft, who still all name team for sure. Uh, <laughs> and you've got him wide open on an intermediate route. And instead, Mullins decides to throw to a double covered Richie James down the sideline. It's just not a good decision and passes up a wide open River Craycraft along the intermediate area of the field. And then you've got a bonkers end zone throw to River Craycraft. It's probably one of Mullins' better throws on tape, which gets dropped because, you know, Craycraft got signed just a couple of days ago. That's River and, Craycraft. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you, you are up River Craycraft without a paddle at that point. <laughs> and, and, you, and, and it's just not a great throw, bad finish from the wide receiver. And then you've got him short-circuiting under pressure. And, and, it just, and <laughs> Justin School did not help my dude Mullins at this point. I, I feel like, you know how a quarterback gives a gift 
to the offensive linemen like Rolexes or you know whatever. I feel like everyone should get a gift except for Justin School. Wow, harsh. Yeah, I mean, like, look, it was it was pretty ugly, and and uh, you know, we're gonna talk about the offensive line here in a minute. But yeah, I think for Mullins, it's just um, yeah, more of the same. I, I think in in this game we saw a lot of plays. Some sometimes he got away uh, like away with it, but he he did this thing in this game that's been happening. I think I feel like more and more in his dropbacks, which is like this: I'm gonna kind of hang on and and look at my first look a little bit too long, and then as I try to like. Uh, move off finally and get to maybe my second or third look on the play. Pressure is starting to close in at that point because of, uh, you know, obviously the state of the 49ers line in, in this game, especially. Um, and then he tries to like kind of go back to that first look and get a pass out really quick. And and it just ends up being a disaster. Like a couple times he was able to get it at least like either out of bounds or have it land somewhere that, that wasn't in harm's way. But that's essentially what happened on the, you know, the first interception or like, I guess the only interception, the one, the savage one, of course, uh, it, you know, should have been intercepted, but, uh, the, the one where he's trying to get it out to, uh, jet on, you know, kind of the left-hand side in the flat there and he gets hit as he throws, it's because he's trying to force it up when he sees that pressure coming and it's too late, right? The ball needs to be out at that point. And so it, it, even though, yes, like the, the hit is affecting where he can target that throw, it's a throw that he's forcing up under pressure that he sees coming in his face. And so it's more of a decision-making element there that, that's the problem. And, and that's, I think, uh, you know, something that just like you deal with with back that like, that's why they're backup quarterbacks, right? If they were making yep. good decisions and they were consistently making the throws like he made in, you know, to the end zone, uh, to river Craycraft, they're like, then he would be a starter, but this is what you get from backup quarterbacks. And, and the yards were there to be had. I mean, Richie James basically served like Ayuk, Ayuk's stunt double in this game. This was a game plan that looked to be, you know, the Ayuk breakout game. Last week, you know, Ayuk had uh, over 100 yards, but it looked like it was not close. And so he didn't get as much fanfare as maybe he would have. But I, I can imagine Ayuk doing all the things that Richie James did in this game. And, and he should have. Were it not being forced to sit because of COVID, the game plan would have featured Ayuk heavily. And there are a couple of plays that, given Ayuk's speed, given his talent at wide receiver, he, he could have broke open or broke for a little bit longer gain. I think Richie James did a fantastic job filling in as Ayuk's stunt double. But it's not like Shanahan's plan was not creating plays and creating chunks against Green Bay's defense. This was not a defense that what you know that kind of kept the or that that bottled the Niners in ways that were you know kind of things that they did this was just the Niners being undermanned and having a quarterback who couldn't execute and a left tackle that was a sieve this was the the thing that brought down that offense you look at the you look at the all 22 and there are people running open there are receivers that are running open um it's just Mullins couldn't execute or Mullins was too busy getting decked while trying to execute and things didn't happen uh, and so I think, you know, a hell of a performance from Richie James. And, and I think when you when you think about what that means for the future of wide receivers on, I think the, the, the team is definitely looking to see which wide receivers should and, and will stick. Uh, I don't know that that Trent Taylor is long for this team anymore. I, I think at this point, James is probably solidifying himself as one of the kind of bottom of the roster wide receivers. And, and then the team's trying to figure out someone else to fill in some spots if Jalen Hurd ends up not doing anything for next year. Yeah, I think it's tough um, it, to know, like, what they are thinking of James. Because it was, like, on one hand, right, like, when he was drafted, he was kind of the initial guy that we thought might 
start to do some of these things, right, that might be involved. And I, I don't think at the point that he was drafted, we knew that this was going to be such a big prominent part of what Shanahan really wanted and where he wanted his offense to go, you know, like we, that we learned after he makes the Debo Samuel pick and the Brandon Ayuk pick, and, and we really see like, okay, this is stuff that he wants to feature prominently in his offense. You know, that wasn't really the case, I think, when, when James was um, selected, but it was still those kind of things that we – I think really expected from him in any sort of role that he was going to carve out when he was drafted. And so on one hand, it's like, it's not surprising to see that he was the guy they went to, to, to kind of fill the gap here as they were down their top two wideouts and, and to take over some of those uh, plays or, or most of those plays. But also it kind of tells you what they think of him initially that they had to draft Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk in the first place, right. To, to kind of basically be better players at that role. And so if those guys are healthy, like, I don't know that you're are you, like are you really going to waste a roster spot on Richie James hanging down there at the bottom of the roster when it just is like a just in case both of those guys get hurt again right like I don't know that you're you're always going to have that guy like the luxury of having that guy available to you yeah, I don't. I don't think that they. Uh, to your point, they they see something with James where they're not able to put more of that workload on him, but it does feel like you couldn't do these things with Trent Taylor. Totally. Like yeah. e- even though they're both effectively the third receiver, they're both th- that F. You you can't put Trent Taylor out at the X wide receiver spot. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had a mental picture of him getting bodied by a corner uh, <laughs> on the line of scrimmage. It's like I love Trent Taylor. That's my dude. You know, I I too have suffered from having to uh, step up on my tippy toes in a picture to not look unusually short. Um, but you know, that's not doesn't exactly make a good X wide receiver, but. I think the the thing that was interesting in this game was the offensive line because the team is beginning to tinker with the offensive line and the construction of the offensive line to try to find the offensive line of the future. Daniel Brunskill started at center, wasn't a complete liability, which is an upgrade from a man Cronus. But the, the issue with the offensive line over the course of the year has been communication. The center makes the line calls, and if the center is not on point, that's going to end up completely blowing up a play. But Brunskill not only managed to have some communication issues, uh, or rather managed to limit communication issues, but also happened to have a good game and, and held up well. And not necessarily spectacular, but at this point, the Niners are on like their third, fourth, maybe fifth string center, if you include the people that are opted out in the preseason. Not being a liability at center is a step up. Right. Yeah, I, I think like... The the trick, right, is whether this continues, because I think this is kind of what we've seen from Brunskill so far is like, okay, like he's capable of having a solid game. At this point, we've seen him have solid games across the offensive line, right? At tackle, at guard, and now at center. Um, but none of those have really stuck and, and have, have been something that he's shown that he can do you know, kind of game in, game out, even just maintaining that kind of solid level of performance, right? We're not asking a guy that that is kind of this versatile backup piece to your offensive line. You, you're not you're not expecting him to come in and be that starting caliber, like top end player every week. But I, I think, you know, there were points at guard where he was really bad and really was also a liability there, right? So I think whether that ends up being true if he gets more time at center, obviously we'll, we'll kind of wait and see. But I think it's good that he's getting some time there, right? Because obviously that was a position where things had been going bad. Um, he hadn't necessarily been great at guard. So, you know, why not switch things up at this point and kind of see what you have? And, and also that gives you, right, an opportunity to look at some of these other guys. 
we, we talked about school. Um, I mean, dude was terrible. I mean, and he doesn't really obviously figure in like that was a, a last minute. You're not planning on putting him in the game if Trent Williams is healthy and available or not on the COVID list. Right. So, um, that's kind of its own separate thing, but I think getting a chance to look at, at Compton and McKivitz there is, is probably something that's a little bit more valuable. Yeah, let's talk about Justin School for a second because he was an, an absolute liability in this game. And he is, he's just bad. Like, he, I don't think when Sean Coleman comes back next year, Sean Coleman opted out because of COVID reasons. And man, in retrospect, good decision for my man, Sean Coleman, at this point. <laughs> but, but at this point, I think Coleman, who was the kind of Niners swing tackle, and if Brunskill ends up either staying at center or guard, then yeah, you are going to need that swing tackle. And that swing tackle is probably going to be Sean Coleman because Justin School should not be anywhere near the starting lineup. He's a six-round draft pick. This is where I, I reinforce that priors should matter. The prior for a six-round draft pick is not a good starting tackle. The prior for a six-round draft pick is like depth player that you hope is not a liability. And in this case, hope is not a strategy because Justin School is indeed a liability. His technique was completely off in this game. He gets his head over his feet, which is basically a death knell for an offensive lineman. He doesn't have good enough hands to not continually get them swiped, which is what happened in this game. He could not get his hands on anyone that was in front of him. And his feet are super slow. Like when you see him, it just, they like looked like they were rooted in the ground. They were lumbering and, and it just, it's not a good look. At one point, he actually like keeps his foreleg planted and rather than shuffling and moving both feet, he just moves his other one wider. And like, like it just looks like he's trying to do the splits while he's trying to pass block. And it's like, dude, that's not going to win. And then of course he gets beat completely manhandled and, and you get a rusher in, in Mullen's face is just not a good game for Justin school. My guy is, is bad. He's bad at football. Yeah. I, I think it was just like, it was kind of a disaster, um, you know, and it was, unfortunate that they had to put him in there um but i mean he was essentially at a rate where he was getting beat um on like 25 percent of pass plays and i think when you <laughs> strip out some like that number goes even i think a little bit higher once you start to strip out things like play action right when you when you, when you talk about um some of the bootleg stuff that the 49ers do in play action or even some of their other play action concepts um you're you're far less likely on a lot of those plays especially if you're the tackle away from where the quarterback is rolling to like give up any sort of pressure on on that type of stuff right so there's a lot of plays that are built into the game plan where like getting pressure isn't even really an option uh, you know on, on those and so when you kind of remove some of that stuff out and you look at more of just the straight drop back stuff and, and what he was doing there i mean the guy, it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like 25, you know, a quarter to a third of those snaps, he was getting beat. And, and in a lot of cases, getting beat very badly and decisively. Like these weren't late losses where it's like, okay, he's getting bull rushed and, and he's like, he's trying to anchor and he's like slowing the guy down a little, at least a little bit. And like, yeah, late in the play, he ends up getting near the quarterback and kind of bumping into him. But he, he did okay. It, like to hold up to that point, like these were quick decisive losses that he was just getting his ass whooped out there and and i think like again it's not a surprise but it's still like suck like that that's really difficult there were a lot of plays where he was getting beat and they had somebody like you kind of alluded to earlier they had somebody open down the field like they had a play to be made there 
And there were just so many kind of like critical plays in and that were notable in the game where the reason the play was unsuccessful was because he got beat and allowed pressure that screwed up Mullins. Yeah, I think the, the play that we're thinking of is at the end of the first half. It's the opening play of the final drive for the 49ers. It's first and 10 from the 25. And the Niners go back to a concept they succeeded on the previous week, where it's going to be a deep post to what should be Ayuk, but in this game is Richie James. It's there. You get the, the call. You get the look. The Packers are in cover six, and James is open. And, and this is a throw that is probably not going to get a touchdown because Mullins looks like he's putting it down the middle of the field as he did in the previous throw, but it's still going to be a big gain and maybe puts the Niners in a position to get some points before the half. But instead, you've got school getting completely roasted and all of a sudden Mullins is getting hit as he throws and the ball falls incomplete. So very in a very real way, his inability to pass block uh, cost the 49ers dearly in this game. But there was one position where the Niners are very clearly uh, tinker stinkering their lineup, if you will. And that was with the right guard, Compton versus McKivitz. McKivitz, draft pick, is, is much ballyhooed. Like he may be the guy that they're thinking to be the right guard. David, how did he play? And how did he play as compared to the, the veteran Tom Compton? I think McKivitz, it was kind of a tough game to like gather much information because of the way that they chose to. So these like so they, they rotated out that position um, kind of throughout the game. And, and so you ended up in the spot where McKivitz just his overall number of snaps was was really small, only had 11 pass blocking snaps uh, in the game total, which is already even if all of those were like great one on one opportunity, like great evaluation snaps for him. That's already a very small number, but um, really you're talking about within that like three or four plays where there was actually like a one-on-one situation where he's pass blocking in, in kind of a straight drop back type of, of thing. So when you plays where you're kind of filtering out some of that play action stuff, like I talked about with school um, and, and you're getting rid of plays, like a, a lot of times as a guard, right? Your life as a pass protector is either receiving help from the center, you know, depending on things go, or sometimes you're the one providing help, you know, whether that's to the center, if you're sliding his direction or whether that's outside uh, to the tackle, and so like you just don't have a lot of snaps where you're getting those same one-on-one opportunities like you get with school and tackles on the outside. Um, and, and so I think like he had one play where, you know, he does surrender a pressure where he he's a little late getting out there to receive a stunt from McGlinchey, who's trying to pass somebody off inside so he can get out to a wide rusher. Um, and the other plays, it was just kind of like, yeah, he was fine. But again, you're talking about two, three snaps there. And so it's just not a lot to go on, I think. Yeah, I thought it was positive. Some of what he did in the run game, I thought he looked kind of in control. You, you, I think the the paragon for me for like lack of control on the move is Josh Garnett. Like when I think of a player that I'm like, okay, don't look like him out in space because that means trouble. Um, he looked. I mean, he's an athletic guy, and and in Shanahan's scheme, especially in the run game, you're looking like what what do they look like when they're moving to the second level? Are they able to engage in blocks? Are they able to track linebackers that are more athletic generally than linemen? And he did those things. So I think. The fact that as a fifth round draft pick, right, remembering the prior that we just talked about Justin School, Justin School's prior is a sixth rounder, right? I don't think the expectation from McKivitz as a fifth round pick is that he's going to be out here and be a fantastic starting guard. So you, you look for those signals one way or the other. And the fact that he wasn't completely useless in this game is, is you know, it, it's a step and, and you just kind of take it for what it is and see what comes later if he does get more snaps. 
Compton similarly wasn't a complete liability either. But it's clear the Niners are looking to figure out a combination that might work on that offensive line. Because if they can figure that out and they can figure out something at center, then that might be what they roll with in, in 2021. And obviously, at this point, you're kind of in evaluation mode. I mean, they, they're not going to obviously, like, admit that. And, and they're not going to probably, that's not going to be their mentality over the rest of the season. Like, look, we're obviously giving up on trying to win games and we're just focused on that. But, um, you know, they'd be lying to themselves if that's not a part of what they're going to be looking at the rest of the season, right? You need to kind of see what you have from some of these young players as much as possible or some of these more unknown players uh, that might be new to the team and, and you're trying to make decisions as to whether um, they're going to be with you long term or what their role might be what they're capable of like they need to try to take advantage of some of those things and so I think the offensive line is definitely a spot where they have some players that they'd like to see more of well before we get to some quick hits and before we get to kind of the back half of the pod when we're going to talk about evaluating a couple of key components of the 49ers as a whole as we move into you know what is likely going to be the the final stanza of the season for the Niners if they don't make the playoffs and moving into 2021. Uh, We're going to first talk about some sponsors because this week's pod is brought to you by Indeed. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. And right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. This week's pot is also brought to you by Bet Online. Football is back in full swing for most teams. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season, from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, David, let's get to the quick hits. Because we've got uh, really a couple things here. Six things. Six. We've pre-written them, David. <laughs> Little peek behind the curtain. Jimmy Garoppolo did not opt for surgery, so he may be back in mid-December. So the Niners went out and signed Josh Johnson to the practice squad. Josh fucking Johnson. I thought I'd heard the last of him in like 2014. Nope. I mean, why? Why to both of these, honestly? Why do we give a shit that Jimmy Garoppolo is going to come back to this like fucking decrepit team right now in mid-December? Like, let the guy just fucking rest and try it again next year. Um, And then, yeah, Josh Johnson, like... 
I mean, whatever. He, <laughs> he's going to compete with Dante Johnson for the Barnacle Award for the 49ers. It's the player that they just can't quit over the course of a year. And Barnacle, I guess, is the you know, more pro. You could go with herpes, too. I mean, either either one will work at this point. But let's go with the more, you know, Barnacles because that's, you know, a bit more appropriate. But uh, second, Akella Witherspoon was a healthy scratch. You never want to go full Pettis. And Akella Witherspoon looks like he's going full Pettis. Not great. Like with, 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 the, with the state of the secondary and you're, and you're a healthy scratch, it's not a good look. Not fucking, a good look. Fucking brutal. I yep, that's a, a swing and a miss for us and the 49ers, I think. Yeah, I know. Hey, you know, we tried. We tried. Hey, can't hit them all. Charlie Warner didn't suck. That's a revelation. And you know what? It should be called out because we shit on Charlie Warner a lot in this pod. <laughs> and you know what? He made it eight fucking snaps and didn't get the shit beat out of him. So that's, Progress, a, that's David. a thing. Progress. We are looking for any morsel of progress. Okay. Speaking of progress, what does my man Kevin White have to do to get some snaps? Because fucking River Craycraft, the pride of Trabuco Canyon, California, got 51 snaps. 51 snaps for River Craycraft. Dante Pettis has gotten 66 snaps all year before his release. And River Craycraft almost surpassed that in one game. Kevin White, meanwhile, who has the talent to do all the things that River Craycraft did. Uh, instead, uh, the talent, I said. The talent, my friend. Uh, the problem is that River Craycraft was playing the slot. And this was going to be like, you know, Richie James is going to be the pseudo Ayuk. River Craycraft was going to be the dude in the slot. And But man, what do I got to do to get Kevin White some snaps? That's all I'm saying. I mean, maybe he needs to actually be good at football. Like, and that'll get some snaps. Like, I'm just saying, if you, you kind of answer your own question at the point, like the receiving core is in the state that it was in in this game and you get seven snaps. Like, like you probably just are not good. Oh. I'm just going to throw it out there. I hate it. I hate every second of it. Uh, Kyle Shanahan said that Marcel Harris, not more, uh, Tarverius Moore, will continue to get reps replacing Jaquaski Tart because, and I quote, usually... The bigger body does get snaps at strong safety. Uh, so just kind of goes to show how the Niners are thinking about these two positions. They're not interchangeable. They do believe they do different things. They prefer the bigger body for the strong safety near the box. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I guess big body does not necessitate good football player uh, because Marcel Harris, I guess maybe just needs to maybe he needs to play a linebacker. Just keep him around the line of scrimmage. Because once he starts getting a little deeper, it doesn't end well for him. I don't know. So this is like, uh, it just feels like you don't even understand what you're actually doing defensively on on a large portion of your snaps. And like, it's not like the 49ers are in a defense any longer where you have a strong safety that's down in the box, you know, 80, 90% of your snaps. Like, that's not the reality that they live in. Like... Yes, they are still at a spot where I think they're they're just slightly above fifty percent in terms of the the amount of snaps that are in a single high coverage look. But a lot of those are now in cover one, and a lot of times what they're doing in cover one because um, Harris is not a guy that you want matching up in coverage is he ends up being the deep free safety, and Jimmy Ward comes down so that he can be the guy that mans up 
um, with, you know, one of the five eligible receivers there. And so even on a large portion of those snaps, like I would say, like you're, you're probably in the neighborhood of 60 plus percent of your overall snaps where you're either having Sarah's, uh, Harris be the single high safety in some of your single high looks, or you're in a two high look where he's again, not at the box. Um, and yeah, dude got like fucking roasted again this week, um, on, you know, the deep touchdown pass to Valdez Scantling and just like, he's not good. He's, he's a complete liability in coverage right now. And you're asking him to do a hell of a lot more than just be an extra linebacker down in the box. Like I, I, it just like that, that quote doesn't make sense at me, uh, sense to me. And it, it, it's just kind of like uh, the, the point they just made about like wanting to see things from your younger players and figure out what you have. Like you don't need that with Harris. You've seen it. You've seen it for seasons. He's not good. Like why not get more out there? He's got over a thousand snaps in his career of not being good. Yeah. We know what he is. We know what he is. And and yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think the, the Niners just, and I think Shanahan probably just has a preference for how he wants those safeties seen. I mean, we've seen uh, uh Excel file of the Niners internal depth chart and they do list their safety separately. One is a strong safety, one is a free safety. But to your point, they they do they've been doing more split safety stuff over the last couple of years. And so, you know, I just I, I can't wait until They'd go just full split safety. Come to the modern NFL. We're waiting. It'll happen. Don't worry. Uh, last point in the quick hits. Shanahan hates your fantasy team. Jarek McKinnon outsnaps Jermichael Hasty, uh, And it's probably because uh, Jermichael Hasty goes the wrong way on run plays. Maybe. I don't know if you guys caught that in the game uh, in the first half. Jermichael Hasty just going the wrong way. And what sucks about that is that the, the, the hole was wide open on the correct side of the run play. But Hasty went the wrong way. Uh, Eric Stonehouse on Twitter says, here's the Shanahan equation. If running back A is the better play and running back B is supposedly not 100%, then start running back B in your fantasy football lineups. It's the third time this season that Shanahan has done that specific thing. Look, this week, you know, I I was on uh, the bad end of that playing Jet McKinnon. Um one week where you know that we, that he did basically nothing. I forget which week it was, but w- w- that we talked about him in the the Patreon pregame chat is like, yeah, of course it makes sense that he's the guy that's going to get uh, the bulk of the snaps there. And so I had him in my lineup that week. Um, did not go well, but I had McKinnon in my lineup against the Packers, and he was the only fucking 49ers player that got any points. So hey, I'll take it. His legs, I guess, got rested, and now he is better. Uh, but in the meantime, my fantasy team suffered. It's okay. We're bouncing back, bouncing back. Uh, but let's get to the evaluation because as you said, the Niners are in evaluation mode. So we're going to shift some of our focus to evaluation and and we're going to talk about two people that I think are really the the heart and soul of this team. And they're the, they're the people that have been able to put the team in positions to succeed so far. And yet teams are, are, are people, I think, and fans are somewhat not always decided on one of them and the other... I think I want to talk about maybe their conservatism a little bit, but the first is going to be Robert Sala. Robert Sala is, has been on that Niners roller coaster over the course of his career where everyone's like, Oh my God, he's trash. And then in 2019, everyone's like, Oh my God, he's great. He's going to be a head coach someday. And now everyone's like, Oh my God, he sucks again. And, and I, I think that neither one of those things is necessarily true. Um, I think especially in 2020 and even probably early on, he really is just like a man working with imperfect clay. Um, and, and when we, I mean, we talked 
about Marcel Harris and we talked about, you know, kind of the, some of the players he's had to deal with. But I think Robert Sala is doing the the right kinds of things that you would expect from a defensive coordinator working within the scheme that he's built. Um, and, and and I think that's like big picture for Robert Sala. I think that's where he's at. Yeah, I, I think from like a scheme standpoint, um, I don't have a lot of issues there. I, I think like he's uh, continued to like evolve that scheme. Like the things that they're doing now aren't the same things that they were doing year one. You know, year one is he's kind of implementing the system. Um, and, you know, obviously the team overall from a personnel standpoint isn't in the state that they want it to be yet. Like they're, they're doing uh, at that point, a lot of very just kind of basic vanilla stuff, like keeping things very simple. And I feel like each year they're getting a bit more depth, you know, with that playbook and adding more wrinkles, doing a lot more different things with, you know, their zone pressure packages, you know, they're, they're not just a team that sits in this cover three shell all game long anymore. Like, um, you know, that, that's still definitely there and it's there, I think, you know, late in games when, you know, the, the outcome might be decided or stuff like that. They kind of like, all right, we're just going to fall back on, on that look. But when, in key situations when the game is still close, you know, things early on, like they're doing a lot of different things schematically. And I think, you know, the, the one, I, I think it really all comes back down. Like my main issue with Sala. And I think the anytime I've had issues with Sala throughout his tenure here is I feel like it's more personnel related in either, either the, the choosing of specific personnel or the way to, to kind of deploy that personnel more often. So I think like this year, the thing that I would point to, that kind of falls in line with that is kind of their use of Emmanuel Mosley. I feel like the way that they use Mosley is uh, in a way that it makes it seem like they view him as this kind of like top end cornerback. They really do put him in a lot of situations where he is kind of isolated and often isolated against the opposing team's best receiver. And, And I think that like, these are intentional things, right? It's not like, a poor scheme that that leads to this matchup that the offense created. Like this is something that they are choosing to do. And I think that's just like a mistake, right? I think it's a misevaluation of Emmanuel Mosley's ability, but I, I think that's kind of the main thing that is consistently popping up with him in his tenure. Yeah. Now I'm curious how much of that is on Robert Sala or the position coaches, because yeah. we know that the position coach has a lot of say in the players that get subbed in and out and, and the players and how they play. But I think it still all rolls up to Robert Sala. And if I'm Robert Sala and my position coach says, yes, I'm going to start Emmanuel Mosley as my isolated safety in a three by one against DeAndre Hopkins, I'm going to be like, hmm, I've got some questions. Or <laughs> even or even if like, OK, so you give the position coach that first time, right? This is week one, right? You're playing DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah. All right. You think Mosley can do it? Let's see if he can do it, right? You're going to give your position coach who you, you know, I'm hoping you trust you put him in that position. Um okay, let's see how it goes. And when it doesn't go well, and the fact that you continue to do it game after game, at that point, like, yeah, Salah's got to, like, if it is something he's relying on the position coach for, like, he's got to step in at that point. Like, look, this ain't fucking working. Like, we need to figure out something to do because we don't have a cornerback that can be isolated in those situations and that we can expect to have success right now. So, yeah, I think there's, and there's been things like that in the past, right? There's been the way, you know, you think of the way that they utilize Solomon Thomas, um, for so long and, and the, kind of a, refusal. and that wasn't a position coach. I mean, that was, uh, yeah. before Chris Kasurik, you had Jeff Scanina and Jeff Scanina did not like Solomon Thomas. He did not play him. He did not play them and play him in the right spot. 
Um, and then it, it took someone like Chris Kasurik to, to be like, oh, yeah, let's let's actually change that to a point where I think even Shanahan got involved in how they were going to play Solomon Thomas. And he was like, all right, we're going to see him a little bit different. You know, it's like at that point, even Sh- it's got to get up to Shanahan to be like, don't don't do that. <laughs> and and so, like, that's the main thing that is like, I, I just don't know that I fully trust his ability to evaluate the certain players. I, I don't know. It seems to be a blind spot with like some players. Um, on the roster and, and kind of the Smith. way that they get utilized um, just doesn't always make sense, right? It doesn't seem like he's always putting those players in kind of the best position to be successful. Um, so I think that's kind of where he falls short. But um, like overall, like in the grand scheme of things, I, I do think he is a good defensive coordinator. Like his ability to be and whether he'll become, I think he'll eventually get a chance to be a head coach and, and his success there will be largely dependent on things that aren't what we're talking about. You know, like it's not going to be all um, his defensive scheme and all of that. Like if he's going to be good, um, you know, as as a head coach, that's there's a bunch of other things that are going to be involved there in that conversation. So I think just for what the 49ers need and having a good defensive coordinator and, um, you know, doing things schematically that are that that make sense and that are good. Like I think overall he is a good defensive coordinator. Um, that, but that doesn't mean that he's, you know, of course, perfect and that, that everything that he has done has worked out well. Yeah, I think that the the question I always ask myself is, OK, are is there a very clear upgrade from what Robert Sala is doing right now out there that you can say, yes, that's the guy? I think unless we're going to go get someone like Wade Phillips or someone like Todd Bowles or Jim Schwartz, who are these kind of like long term defensive coordinators that have had success at multiple stops and have really innovative kind of game plans then I think, yeah, you can make the case that that might be a place where you would go. But I don't know that there's that there's a lot out there that would be like, yeah, let's just go ahead and get someone that's better than Robert Sala. I think if Robert Sala does get a head coaching job, the Niners will feel it. And and, and it will be different. And and I think maybe, you know, when you think about the Gus Bradleys of the world or even the Dan Quinns, you know, like I, I don't know yeah. that they would necessarily be upgrades. Um, and, and I think that's probably the truest test when you think about Robert Sala. It's like, yes, certainly not perfect. Yes, the Super Bowl calls are frustrating. I get that. But let's not let, you know, one or two of those things like wash over the fact that he is out there trying to play defense with Marcel Harris. Yeah. Uh, and, and and the fact that he's out there trying to get a pass rush with Kerry Hyder and Dion Jordan and Ziggy Ansah for 13 snaps and DJ Jones. I mean, there's some defensive line uh, kind of position groups that look like a bunch of nose tackles and and he's still out there getting pressure like that is the defensive coordinator he is scheming pressure and and i think that that often gets lost when it comes to talking about robert sala so i think when you're talking about evaluating him as a defensive coordinator again certainly not perfect but still uh, in, in a good defensive coordinator and i think the last point that i would have on on sala like that is i think a big point in his favor is kind of that willingness to adapt like, I, I do feel like he's made a lot of changes that have been very positive during his time in, in San Francisco. And, and I think they are they have moved a very good direction defensively with the types of things that they're doing. Um, and, and not every defensive coach, I, think, I feel like defensive coaches especially tend to be guys who are like, this is the way I know how to do it. We're going to do things our way and and just kind of hope for the best, right? And And there's not a lot of um, willingness to adapt there and to change scheme and to do things like, you know, it, it, I think the the fact that he was able to change, you know, what they were doing from some of their coverages, for instance, something that we've talked about uh, really at length at this point, like 
like not every coach is willing to do that. You know, I think you, you see a lot of the, the guys that come from that single high type setup and they're still playing a lot of single high. I mean, like it, you look at teams like the chargers that are still playing cover three around 50% of the time and, you know, mixing in a lot of other single high looks in, in addition to those. And so, um, they have evolved and I think he has shown that willingness to make changes, you know, not always right away and, and maybe not always as quickly as, as we would have liked, but, um, I think that is something that not every coach has or is willing to do. Now, the other person that we're going to talk about here is, is Kyle Shanahan. And we we are very pro Kyle Shanahan on this podcast. We are we love his offense. We love everything that he does. And, and I, I'm certainly not going to open up this discussion and say that Shanahan needs to be looked at in terms of his head coaching quality. I think he is uh, definitely the right head coach and a good head coach for the 49ers. The one thing I, I, I will... I do want to talk about a little bit is the seeming exceedingly conservative nature of Kyle Shanahan and whether or not that is something that we are going to track as we move through both this season and into the future of what I am imagining is going to be at least a few more years in his head coaching tenure. Cause this week he talked about, he was asked about mobile quarterbacks and, and he was asked whether or not he, you know, his position on mobile quarterbacks has changed Kyle Shanahan is someone who does not like mobile quarterbacks. Even though he can call an offense for a mobile quarterback, as he did with RG3, he, he thinks that having a quarterback that can run means that they're going to limit their development as a pocket passer. Because if you can't run, then you have to develop that pocket passing element in order to be good. That's not a position that's unique to Kyle Shanahan. But when you look at quarterbacks like Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, all quarterbacks that provide uh, a running threat to some degree, a large swath of them would be really kind of moved away and moved out of the conversation in Kyle Shanahan's mind because he needs a C.J. Beathard. He needs a guy who can't physically move out of the pocket and needs to, in theory, work out of that with his mind and with his arm. And it just, it struck me that that kind of, overly conservative mindset of like, I, I'm not gonna draft a guy who can run because I need him to be, you know, kind of the, the archetype of a quarterback that's been known to everyone forever. And then you miss out on players like Mahomes. You miss out on the Lamar Jacksons or the Deshaun Watsons of the world. And when you put that in the bucket with his conservative calls on fourth down, like kicking the field goal in freaking Green Bay, <laughs> like, come on, dude, don't, don't kick that field goal, like score the touchdown, you know, like all that stuff is it's, it's certainly one of those things where it's like, again, no, no coach is perfect. And, and we're not trying to put Shanahan to that standard, but his conservatism is definitely something I'm going to keep an eye on over his tenure here with the 49ers. I, I think, yeah, it does need to be, it, we, we bring it up as like a way of like, where can he continue to get better? Right. Cause I think that's like, um, you know, hopefully something that everyone on the 49ers that, that everyone in general is like striving to do, right. You, you kind of want to always try to be a better version of yourself. And you look, when you look at where Shanahan can potentially improve and get better as a head coach and as an offensive play caller, I do think being more aggressive is, is kind of the clear thing that stands out with him right now, because obviously, um, we talk, I mean, rarely does a week go by that we don't talk to some degree about Kyle Shanahan's ability 
to, you know, call excellent offensive football and, and to kind of scheme his players open and to put guys in, in positions to succeed and um, really get more out of his group offensively than you would really expect most coaches to be able to get, right? The, the amount that they're able to produce offensively with some of the lineups that they've put out there um, is, is very impressive and is very much a credit to him. But that doesn't mean that there isn't room for improvement, right? And that he can't continue to do other things um, that do give him and his team a better chance to win. I think being more aggressive, you know, in some of those fourth down situations, some of those situations as you get uh, kind of into the red zone and closer to the goal line, especially, um, you know, it, it just, it, it's an easy win. It's an easy adjustment to make. And the only reason to not make it honestly is just like stubbornness and and like an unwillingness to adapt, which doesn't really jive with the rest of his, you know, what we know about him as a coach and, and as a play caller. So um, it is something that you hope can be uh, kind of corrected and improved on going forward. And I think very much you would rather be, we've talked about this before, right? Where if you're going to have an offensive coach or a head coach and, and you look at areas that he's deficient, you want the guy that knows the scheme and, and it's this great offensive mind and needs a little bit of work on some of these decision-making stuff like fourth down calls, right? You can improve there. That's an easy thing to change. If you have the guy that's good at decision-making, but doesn't know shit about scheme or can't help you there, like, like that's tough. That's tough to overcome. You're going to be incredibly reliant on assistant coaches and things that are not always going to be in your control, right? So I, I think you want to be in the camp that has somebody like Kyle Shanahan, but there are definitely some areas where, you know, I think he can, can be better. Yeah. I mean, you think about Riverboat Ron, like that's the example for yep. me of like someone who went from immediately not being good at this fourth down thing to just being like, you know what? Fuck it. Uh, and, and not, and Riverboat Ron is a sensation. And, and he definitely improved his decision-making on fourth down. That's all still possible. It's much harder to get someone who knows, uh, you know, to, to get Tom Sula to Shanahan's level on offensive scheme is kind of what I'm saying. Uh, but I think that does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Uh, we've got some Patreon videos. We're going to take a look, I think, at the offensive line because we are going into full evaluation mode at this point. So we're probably going to have some big picture evaluation components as we move throughout the season on the pod. But then we're also going to put some videos to it on the Patreon and we'll take a look, I think at maybe Javon Kinlaw. We'll take a look at the offensive line and, and see how they're doing because it is kind of at this point, all eyes to 2021 and it's, it's wild. I mean, it's, it's the Niners are just one game below 500, uh, but they're in last place in their division. Seattle at this point is, uh, is looking like they're having some trouble with the uh, fighting Josh Allen's. And, and yet the season seems like it's definitely moving towards evaluation mode. And honestly, if, if I'm not going to make it to the Super Bowl, this is almost kind of like like quasi best case scenario, right? Like you get a better draft kick and pick. You can evaluate players. You're not caught in this kind of weird, you know, nine and seven, you know, eight and eight rat race. You can just figure out retool and, and reload for the next year. I mean, you would definitely if you're going to have a down year, make it a down year, right? I think everybody knows that if this team is fully healthy and if they get a lot of these players back next year you know things are going to be much different and if they were to go I feel like even if they were to lose out right that doesn't really change the outlook for them next season and, and going forward because you just are, are 
playing with a roster that just like doesn't even make like it shouldn't be an NFL roster right now. I mean, to be honest, like some of the guys that they're putting out there are not guys that should be getting significant snaps at the NFL level. And and so, uh, yeah, it becomes very difficult to be competitive and and, uh, do much of anything, you know, for this season in this any sort of playoff push. And so I think, um, yeah, it is better because, again, they're not going to like the injuries have kind of forced them into that path. Right. Like they're not going to willingly just decide that we're not going to, you know, try to win football games. Like, I don't think that's their mentality. I don't think that should be their mentality. Like, um, it's not a path that you want to really go down as an organization. Like that just is, is something that like where you start to kind of accept losing, but it is like, we, we know that it's better for your team to, to like have that extra draft capital to, to be able to pick higher in the draft and to get some of that stuff. And so that comes with having a really down season. And so if they can use some of those things to like get another piece in the draft and that helps them bounce back when they have a healthier roster next year, then they're even more likely to, to be able to have a chance at getting back to that Super Bowl again. I mean, it's the Bosa effect is ultimately what it is. Yep. You know, the Niners wouldn't have been there if not for having that second overall pick. And they had that because Jimmy Garoppolo did us a favor and got injured. And he's doing us the same favor now. That's all I'm saying. Uh, thanks again for tuning in, everyone. Uh, check in next week. I think we'll do next week's pod. It, it's weird timing because of all the like Thursday, Sunday, Monday, bye week games. But either way, thanks for tuning in. And as always, go Niners. <laughs> <laughs>